Welcome to Better in Real Life, a podcast from the Trestle Collective. I'm your host, Jonathan McGinty, and in this series, I like to have conversations with good folks doing some interesting, pretty cool things. This week, I visit with Tamara Lush, an author and writer based in Florida. Today, her full-time job is writing romance novels, crime stories, and cozy mysteries. But she also has more than 25 years of experience working as a reporter, including a stint with the Associated Press in Florida, where she covered, of course, some of the most Florida things possible. I've covered a lot of alligator stories. There's that alligator on the golf course in Manatee County called Chubbs, and he looks like a giant dinosaur. Um, that was a pretty good, that was a pretty fun and interesting story. Oh, well, of course, the monkeys. I always loved covering the monkeys. I've covered a variety of monkey stories over the years. I mean, it's not Florida Man, sort of, um, because people would go and feed them. So there are monkeys uh, in, there's monkeys in a couple of different places, but there's some monkeys near Ocala um, in Silver Springs, and they sort of just live wild near a river. Um, And then there's also a colony of monkeys in Fort Lauderdale, near the Fort Lauderdale airport and in the parking lot of a Motel 6, and also near the uh, car rental place. Actually, I can report that when I just went to Fort Lauderdale last month, we went looking for the monkeys specifically to see them, and we did not. And I was extremely disappointed not to see. I think it was kind of hot. So, (laughs) but I, I mean, that was like a highlight of my day going to look for the monkeys. I love the wacky Florida wildlife, you know, like the giant, we did see this huge iguana, like an alligator size iguana in a garbage can while looking for the monkeys. I love every alligator story. I would never say no to an alligator story. I was introduced to Tamara through her Twitter feed during the first few days of the pandemic. We exchanged follows and immediately I was drawn to her feed, her writing and her reporting. She remembers that desire to tell stories being rooted in her from an early age. I guess I've always known it. Ever since I was little, I loved to read. And I um, I used to write these little books, these little like fiction books when I, when I was little. And usually they involved, um, they were they were mostly like Raiders of the Lost Ark fan fiction. As that, That's the best thing I can describe them. <laughs> nice. But it usually involved like a swashbuckling, adventurous and handsome man and a very adventurous woman. And really, you know, I also write fiction, obviously. And so that's kind of what the fiction is like, too. So I'm not really writing anything different than when I was seven. Um, Although I did take a 30 year foray into journalism. (laughs) So that's so funny, because I wonder, you know, when I was a child, my interest was in sports journalism. Hmm. So. I remember before a Georgia football game on a Saturday, like, you know, we have grown up in Augusta, I would make a program for that day and I would write a little preview of the game and all of that. And I would like visualize how I wanted it to be laid out. So, um, and it was because I read the paper cover to cover every day as a kid. Yep. Sure. Yeah. I have a lot of memories of watching the news and reading the news. Um, I'm, you know, at my age, I'm my advanced age, I remember some of the big news and it, some of it was, I grew up in California. And so I remember uh, when the San Francisco mayor, um, Mayor Moscone and uh, Dan White, the Harvey, you know, Harvey Milk, that whole shooting, that assassination. Mm-hmm. I also remember uh, the Jim Jones massacre. These are really dark things for a kid to remember. <laughs> um, but I also remember when uh, John Lennon was shot Mm -hmm. And so I remember those things pretty vividly. They had a pretty vivid 
impact on me. And so eventually I, I don't, I don't even want to say I drifted into news. I, I, when I was in high school, I realized I wanted to be, at the time I wanted to be in broadcast and my first jobs were in radio and my degree is in broadcast journalism. Um, I ended up drifting more into print journalism out of necessity, but um, yeah, I, I loved being in news and it was all I ever wanted to do actually. Yeah, that's very similar to mine. I, I, I majored in, well, Georgia at the time called a telecommunications. There was a broadcast news degree. I, I had fanciful dreams of uh, being a screenwriter, but I didn't really want to live on the streets of Hollywood for a while or wait tables. So I, I abandoned that, but, uh, but no, I migrated to print journalism as, as well. Um, what was your first job? What do you, what do you uh, remember about that? Um, my very first job was at a radio station in Massachusetts. Um, WATD in Massachusetts, still around. And I worked for the local news and they, they had a very robust local news department. And I learned so much. Um, I, you know, I was an on-air reporter and I wrote news and it was a different era, um, obviously, but the station, it was a, it was a locally owned station and he was really committed to news and having a new staff. So I learned all the nuts and bolts about local news and covering meetings and, school boards and homicides and all sorts of things. It was, it was the best education I could get. So that was my very first journalism job. I tell everybody that the, because my first job was I covered high school athletics at the Athens oh. newspaper. And it's, it's covering a local beat that I feel mm -hmm. like is what makes you yep. be better when you are more, when you get older and, and have more experience in the industry. Absolutely. And, and, I, for most of my career, I did local news. I mean, until pretty well, until 13 years ago, I did local news. Um, I worked for many years for the then St. Petersburg Times mm -hmm. and, um, you know, covered Florida as a state. And I had also covered cops in Tampa. I, I was actually in many ways a better local journalist than I was a national journalist. And my fondest memories, as much as I love the AP, some of my fondest memories were of were or as a local journalist, because I think that's where you can make the most impact. Um, and, and even now I do miss local journalism and have even thought like, should I go back to local journalism or not? I, I don't think that I should, but, um, and I don't think there are many, uh, jobs available. So. Right. Well, I mean, to that point, when I see, I graduated Georgia in 2000, when I started at the newspaper, there was, I mean, this is the Athens newspaper. So we're talking 25,000, 30,000 circulation, uh, daily newspaper. And we had maybe 11, 10 people on sports. And then we wow. had, we had, cause I mean, Georgia athletics was driving yeah. everything, but and then another 10 to 12 in, in the rest of our newsroom. So you're talking wow. 20 to 25 folks. And That's now, I mean, now 20 years later, they can barely fill a, a closet over there. Yeah. Yeah. That's the sad part. So, so yeah, I, I, you know, I admire people who are still in local news and I read local news and, and I, and it really has the most impact in many ways, more so than national news. I think, I think we're also attuned to the big national news of the day that we forget about how important local news is. You made the transition to AP. And I feel like for a lot of print reporters, that's sort of, I don't want to say that's the, the pinnacle, but it's up there. I mean, it's the one of it's a nationally or it's a national news organization. It's sort of the 
the, the move you want to make career wise. Is that a fair assessment? Is that something that you were thinking, this is, this is what I want to do. I want to get to an, an a, a outlet like, like the Associated Press. Um, I think there are a couple of paths. I mean, obviously with the internet, everything has changed. So, right. um, you know, the, there are some paths that there were times in my career where I wanted to get to the New York Times or the Washington Post or the LA Times. And certainly I have worked with a lot of people who have done exactly that. Um, I took a rather non-traditional career path. I left the St. Petersburg Times so I could go work at an alt-weekly in Miami that was owned by Village Voice Media. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to write long-form journalism that, you know, five, 6,000 word pieces. Um, and I worked there for a year and a half. Uh, I wanted to see what it was like to get out of uh, daily journalism and to see what it was like to work for more narrative non-journal, you know, narrative nonfiction. And that was wonderful and I loved it. Uh, but I did miss daily news. So I applied for the AP. Um, I, I think there was a time when a lot, you know, maybe a decade or two ago where it was thought that the AP um, was where people started. And now I think it's very different. I think the AP, uh, because they do treat their employees so well, I think it's thought of as a career destination. And it definitely is a place where you can do lots of news. You can do really creative things. You can do creative projects. Um, and I, I, I do think it is. It, it was an honor to work there. It, it, it taught me and showed me more about the world than anything else that I could probably ever do. Right, right. And you did when, when you were there, uh, some of the beats you covered were well. You had a, you had a focus on environmental um, journalism for a period of time. Is that is that right? Not well. No, not not entirely. I I've always um, in Miami. I was a general assignment person, and then I came back up to Tampa, um, and I was the correspondent here in Tampa, which meant I kind of did everything. I did some environmental journalism during the oil spill, and that was sort of just because I. I'm on the Gulf Coast and I and all of us who were on the Gulf Coast kind of worked together and we all pitched in on stories that ended up winning the Polk Award for environmental journalism. But I also covered, you know, executions and theme parks and citrus. And I, I was really very much of a generalist um, and obviously crime. I covered a fair bit of crime, too. Is is now you mentioned because I, I, I want to dive into what you're doing now. Um, which is you do a lot of romance, a lot of mystery, a lot of crime, all blended up together. Was that something that you were doing parallel to your time uh, working as a reporter? Um, yeah, I started writing romance in 2014. Um, what prompted that? I, I've always loved the romance genre. I've always loved romance novels um, and I've always loved crime fiction too. Um, but I started writing romance and I sort of thought ahead to a day where I might not want to be a journalist or possibly when journalism might not want me in it because that happens to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So I um, basically started writing romance novels and started doing kind of well. Uh, I took a sabbatical in 2019 to write more no romance novels. That's another great thing about the AP is they offer sabbaticals. Mm -hmm. And so um, I ended up coming back from my sabbatical, figuring I would see things through the election and um, the pandemic happened, obviously. And then I decided that it was time for me to leave. Uh, I got a book deal with a mystery publisher for my mysteries and um, another book deal came through for three romance novels. And I mm -hmm. didn't think I could do both. So I decided that fiction was going to be it. So 
I stepped away from journalism. It, you know, a lot of people thought that was probably a weird and kind of crazy move because I had a really good job. And obviously Florida news is you can't beat Florida news. Um, <laughs> you, know, it, you don't have to do much to figure out a story here. Um, so I, but I stepped away. It, it was mostly for my health. Also, I wanted to be healthier and mentally healthier and the pandemic um, and politics and mass shootings really took their toll on me. Yeah, yeah, I was going to ask about about that. You know, I want to talk a little more about about what you're doing now. But, you know, one of the things and I think you mentioned this on Twitter and I think we had a little bit of back and forth and discussion about it. But it's the it was because to me, before the pandemic, I worked, I you know, I was a reporter and then I transitioned to working into public relations and I missed I missed writing. I didn't, I don't know if I missed reporting so much because that can be a grind, but I definitely missed the act of writing and I was starting right. to feel kind of burned out. And uh, the pandemic offered um, the opportunity, we'll say, we'll put it, put it that way right. <laughs> for me to go do my own thing and get back into to writing. But there was a lot of that burden and that pressure beforehand and the pandemic exacerbated it. You were having to cover the pandemic. You were having to cover one of the most tumultuous elections in a long time, if ever. Um, what did, I mean, you, you talked about it, but from a mental health standpoint, you know, what did you, wh when did you begin thinking of this and what, when did you think this is not, I can't do this, maybe not anymore, but I can't keep doing this right now. Um, it was prior to my sabbatical. So it was back in 2018. And I think a lot of it had to do with the mass shootings I covered um, I covered Pulse and I covered Parkland. Um, I helped cover other ones like Las Vegas and San Bernardino. I mean, a lot of them I helped cover from here, although there were others like um, Sutherland Springs in Texas that I went and traveled for. And that's in addition to hurricanes and whatever else, you know, is going on in Florida, which was a lot already. Um, but the mass shootings really took a toll. And um, so that's when I took a sabbatical and I was like, well, maybe if I take a sabbatical, everything will be kind of okay uh, when I come back and I'll feel better about things. Um, and honestly, the climate, um, and I'll be quite honest because I am not going back to journalism. I think the climate perpetrated by Donald Trump and the Republicans um, has made reporters feel terrible. Um, it hasn't been easy. It's made us the enemy unnecessarily. And uh, that was pretty terrible. Covering Trump rallies was horrible and upsetting. Um, and so, you know, and on top of that, things like witnessing executions, you know, things like that, that had always happened. Um, but so in, when I went back after my sabbatical in October, 2019, I was like, okay, I'm gonna see the pandemic through, uh, or I'm gonna see the, you know, the election through. because so I was put on a, a team for, it was called like voter demographics. We were going to, you know, write about voters right. um, and their choices and things like that. And we had all these great plans for amazing journalism and then the pandemic happened. And then that just exacerbated literally everything that I just said, except the mass shootings kind of, they decreased a little bit. So, um, and I guess overall, and I said this to someone else too, the idea that you can just keep covering the same thing and the same thing and that no one pays attention, like 
I remember covering a mass shooting and somebody looked me in the eye and said, I just don't know what we could have done to, you know, change any of this, or I don't know what we could have done to make any of this different. Well, this was like the 10th mass shooting that I covered. And it's like, well, maybe you should vote for some new people who want gun control. Like, how about that? Right. Starters, you know, but right. as a reporter, you can't say that. And you certainly can't put that in your stories. Yeah. Um, and the same with Donald Trump. I never knew he would do any of this. Well, if you had read our stories, maybe you would think he would. But obviously nobody did. And I'm not just saying this about, you know, Republicans who later turned against Trump. I'm talking about my own liberal friends who believed he was a joke at the beginning of 2016 when I started writing about him. Um, and it wasn't even like I was a White House reporter. I just kind of covered, you know, when he would make a swing through Florida during the primary. Um, and then the pandemic, you know, I, 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 you know, I don't know why anybody would be surprised like what's going on now with this fourth surge. Look outside. Have, yeah, I mean, reporters <laughs> have been telling people that this was going to happen for months, for over a year now. So, you know, obviously not getting vaccinated, that's not working. And I just found it like, I, you know, what what is the saying? Like, if you keep doing the same thing over and over, that's the definition of, you know, mental illness. Well, right. that's the way I felt as a reporter. Like, I kept writing the same stories over and over, and either nobody read them or they thought, they were fake or I don't know what they thought, but they certainly didn't listen. And so what was the point? Like, what was my point of being a journalist if no one was reading or paying attention or making any change? Right, right. No, it was really, it, it felt really terrible, actually. I mean, I have a lot of regrets about when I was a reporter, but I don't know what else I could have done differently. It's, it's, it's a terrible feeling. And do you find now that you've you've stepped away because you you mentioned this when you began the answer there's not necessary because you know and i i always get frustrated when i hear people say oh well journalists are biased they've got a side xyz and maybe there's some 24-hour news channels that have a little bit of a tint to some of their commentary mm -hmm. but journalists are out there to tell a story they're out there to get the facts and they're out there to to share that with you. And whether you like it or you don't like it is not an indication of bias of the reporter, per se. Right. So now that you've stepped away from that, do you feel I don't want to say liberated is the right term. That's a little overdramatic, I feel like. But do you feel a little more you can take a breath and say something now that you've been wanting to say for X number of years? Does that make sense? Yes. I, and I do feel liberated. Yeah. I mean, that, you know. Um, I felt like I was, until 2016, I felt like I was a pretty middle of the road person politically. Like, yes, I did grow up in a very, I grew up in a very politically liberal household. I will say that. And obviously I'm probably more liberal than a lot of people. Um, but I never felt like that hindered or, um, I never felt like that really got in the way of my reporting. I know probably some people would disagree with me, but I felt like, and I, and I felt like enough conservatives um, had, and, I, and I've worked for very conservative newspapers. One of the papers that I worked at was the Manchester Union Leader in New Hampshire, um, which at the time, and probably still is one of the most conservative papers. I also freelanced for Newsmax Magazine once upon a time. So I'm, I, you know, I, my conservative bona fides are there as well as my liberal bona fides. So I, might, I felt like I might put I, a pin in that when I come back to it. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you know, it was at a time when I was freelancing. It was probably like 15, 20 years ago. Newsmax wasn't that 
you know, wasn't as right. big. And so like I wrote about like, I think I wrote a story about a freelance piece about Laura Bush put out a children's book, like a right. little review of that. It, or like, I think I wrote a little mini profile of Charlie Crist when he was governor, like just little thing. It, it was nothing. Run you know, of the mill. Right. right. Clearly I knew their politics, but I was also working at the St. Pete Times at the time. And, you know, like I said, I worked for a newspaper that endorsed Pat Buchanan, not once, but twice. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with conservative politics and conservative editorial boards. And clearly I had no issue working for them, but 2016 changed everything. And quite frankly, Donald Trump and his ilk changed everything. And I, I found it really hard to be unbiased because it's one thing to, disagree with somebody about tax policy and it's it's another it's a whole other thing to um try to be unbiased when it comes to fascism so i couldn't do it like that was the other re that was another reason maybe not the main one but one of the reasons why i left was because i i couldn't it, it like it made me physically like it made me physically ill to be that unbiased i mean there was no you know i went into the hospital over christmas because i had a gallbladder in, I had an inflamed gallbladder and I found myself in the hospital for four nights, at, you know, at almost the peak of the pandemic well, until now. And um, it was terrifying and scary. And my grandmother died of gallbladder cancer. And I was like, if I get out of here without cancer, I'm going to quit. And I'm just going to live my authentic life because this is not okay. I am not okay. And that's what I did. More and more, many journalists are stepping back from daily reporting, citing the stresses and pressures of the past few years. Now, Tamara is putting all of her focus and her energies into her career as an author. And while I don't think I've ever read a romance novel, I do share an interest in the process that goes into crafting these original stories. What does the process... You know, I, I have ideas. I, I would do probably, you mentioned, you know, some nonfiction, long narrative type writing. Like I have a bunch of ideas of stories I've written that I want to take further. I want to talk to more people and build them out. And that requires a lot of research, a lot of background. When you're writing a, a I mean, I guess the romance novel, not so much, but if you're writing a, a true crime novel or, or a cozy mystery, what's your process like to build the world and have it be as, as I don't want to say as accurate as possible, but to, to, to make sure that you've got some things organized and right in there. I, actually, the process is very similar for a, a romance and a mystery. I actually use a software template called Plotter, P-L-O-T-T-R, that helps me plot on a timeline. Um, I actually plot, I tend to plot, um, especially the mysteries that are taking place over the course of a week or two you know, mystery novels generally don't take place over years. So I tend to plot um, by the day. So like I'll say Monday, it's chapter one, what's going on. And there's certain, and both in mystery and romance, there are certain beats that you have to hit. Obviously in a romance, it's when do the two main characters meet and are, you know, what what is the trope? Are they enemies to lovers? Are they friends to lovers? Um, is it a second chance romance? Um, you know, and then from there, with a mystery, generally, I plot the victim and who killed the victim and why first. So then everything is sort of built out around that. It's sort of a concentric circles around that core. Um, and how does the 
you know, the heroine sleuth, the amateur sleuth, how does she find out about the, the homicide and what clues does she need to encounter to figure out the homicide? How my, my problem, I'm curious to hear your method for this. My problem in today's world is, as you can attest, uh, I will get on Twitter and I'll go down a rabbit hole and a lot of it's doom scrolling and I'm trying to be a better person and not do that. How do you budget time during the day? Like, what is your, what is your methodology to say, like you decide I'm writing a chapter a day, I'm writing X number of words a day. What does it look like for you? Um, I do have word count goals. I don't, I, a lot of the times I don't hit them. I try to write something every day, even if it's just 500 words. Um, I, I do use an app called Freedom a lot, and that basically blocks either the entire internet or social media, it blocks whatever I want. So if I'm off Twitter for many hours, it's because I've blocked it on my phone and on my computer, because that's just the easiest way to do it. Um, the other thing I'll do is I, I do use an app or it, it's, it's like a timer app called Pomodoro. Um, and you work in 20 minute increments, like you do a sprint of writing for 20 minutes and then you get up and you walk around for five minutes um, and then you go back and do another sprint. So you see how much you can write in, you know, there are various tricks. I also have a, um, an old school word processor called a free write that is only hooked up to the internet to transmit uh, files. So it, it's like an old school, like literally an old school word processor with a small window. So, and you can't go back, uh, you can't go back and edit. You can only write forward. So you can't surf the internet on it or anything. All you can do is write. So that is another way of just completely blocking everything out. There's just little tips and tricks to do that. Um, you mentioned the old school word processor, and I'm only thinking of this now because I was trying to explain this to somebody else who I had had on, on a podcast recently, um, where, because I remember they were phasing them out when I started. I began, if I was in college, 96 to 2000, I was stringing for the Athens newspaper, let's say from 97, 98 on. And if I had to go to Hartwell or Livonia to cover a football or a basketball game, and I'm, I'm curious if you remember having these, you got the, the cups that you attached to the phone. Oh, I never got those, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I had like these little, I think it was called like the Radio Shack TRS, the Trash 80 or something. Oh, yeah. Sort of weird brick. That's kind of what the free write looks like. It's this, I can, I, I can, it doesn't, I could show you, I have it right here on my desk, but it's really, um, it's this sort of heavy thing and it's just very clunky, but yeah. I, I've I come using the cups though. I've come to the, to the determination that every um, journalism school needs to have a class where they focus on making students use those so they can yes. appreciate what we all had to go through. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that would be fun. Um, well, I'd love to. Well, actually, let me let me ask this one. I want to kind of talk about what makes a good romance novel in, in your mind. But you shared on Twitter. This is how I found it. And then this led me down a whole different rabbit hole. Uh, the Google your name and a pulp or pulp book, oh, uh -huh. pulp yeah. novel. Yeah. Um, I was one not familiar. I probably was familiar with the genre, but I didn't know it was it was called that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, was that a genre that inspired you when you were growing up or when you read or even now? No, no. no. I mean, I've read some pulp novels, you know, but no, no. When I was growing up, I mean, when I was really little, I read a lot of Alfred Hitchcock, um, a lot of Nancy Drew, a lot of Hardy Boys, uh, Harriet the Spy. I mean, that was when I was little, little. And then when I became a teenager, I read whatever steamy romance novel I could get my hands on in paperback. Um, whether it was historical or contemporary. So I especially like the contemporary romance novels. I'm not a huge historical romance novel reader. Um, so I, I, I just like contemporary, you know, modern day set romance novels. How important in the world of romance novels is a really good cover? Oh, really important. Extremely <laughs> important. That is definitely a big deal. How do you, again, this is the naivety me asking this question. How does that, pro, like, how does that process work? Is there a library of things you're choosing from? Do you have a, is there an artist who's commissioned? Um, I, well, it just depends. It depends on the publisher. It depends if you're self-publishing. There are a lot of people who's, I, I have self-published my own romance. I don't have any right now, but I have. Um, there's a lot of stock photos available for romance novelists. Um, people will take the stock photos and Photoshop them. Um, For my latest cover, Drive, uh, my publisher paid a photographer and bought one of his photos and then Photoshopped it into a scene. Um, For the historical covers, some of those historical covers will be photos, but they will be illustrated, um, you know, from somebody who's professional. Interestingly, my... um, cozy mystery covers with my publisher are actually hand-drawn and hand-colored. Um, wow. Those are illustrated from, from hand because I've seen the sketches. So those are not just uh, like clip art or, I mean, there are cozy mysteries that are clip art that people will take, you know, stock graphics and put them together. Um, but a lot of the cozy mysteries that are traditional, traditionally published are hand-drawn and hand-colored. I mean, because it is, I mean, I have memories of seeing them on the little, in the, gro- in the grocery store, like mm-hmm. at the Winn-Dixie, the little yeah. turntables, and they'd be located near the checkout counter. Yeah, some of those. Now, some of those from the 80s and 70s, some of those were actual art, were artists. And there, there is a man who does, he's pretty well known still. Um, he actually does actual paintings for the book covers of the people in the traditional clinch covers, the woman with the flowing dress and the guy who's shirtless with his hair. Those right. are more historical. I think those are what people, people always think like Fabio and that's what Fabio posed with. But in reality, that's not what romance covers are. And, and there are a lot of people who do even have romance covers who are more illustrated covers that look more cartoony. That's a new trend. And some people just have object covers like Fifty Shades of Grey, obviously the best-selling romance novel of all time, didn't have people on it. It just had, I think it was um, a tie in the first one or cufflinks. Right. So sometimes the object covers, but it's all about conveying, you know, the cover conveys the heat level. So that is, that's why it's important. Um, so what are you, what are you working on now? You said you mentioned you have, you're working on a a cozy mystery series right now. Yeah. So my first cozy mystery came out last December and then the second book comes out this December and I'm working on a third in that series, uh, right now. And I'm also working on a romance series, but I'm waiting for edits on book two. So I kind of, I'm, I'm juggling two projects at the moment. 
how long does it normally take you to finish one? Just depends. Uh, I'm trying to finish this book in three months. It's okay. 80,000 words. So I'm trying to finish it in three months. Okay. That's, I, I'm, I mean, it takes me a while to write. So it, that's, it, I mean, it's a little daunting. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to hit like 2000 words a day, but it's so far, it's not, it's not going, I'll, I'll hit it, but the beginning is always the slowest. So sometimes I'll get only like four or 500 words a day, um, or a thousand words, uh, because the beginning, like up to the point where the body is found, you kind of want to get there really yeah. right and set yourself on a good path. So yeah. that's where I'm at. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm about this weekend, I'm going to write the discovery of the body scene. Better in Real Life is a production of Trestle Collective. It's hosted by me, Jonathan McGinty, with original music and editing by Joe Van Hoos. For more, visit TrestleCollective.com, and be sure to let us know what you think of the show.